the Jodcast. The Moon in June is mainly on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogusanu, Samuel Leske, Fiona Porter, Tian Bezeidenhout, Jake Staberg-Morgan, Emma Alexander, Tom Scrag, and Michael Wright. The Jodcast, June 2019 edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Fiona, and joining me in the studio are Tian and Jake. Hello. Hi, everyone. Yeah, it's a bit of a, an after-hour session for us, this one. Yep. Yep, it is. It's just gone half seven. <laughs> so luckily, the other offices are nice and quiet. Uh, save our editors a little bit of trouble. Mm, it's, yeah, it's the only recording slot we could get to work out to get us three all together. Yeah. Sometimes. Our schedules are just too exciting. Because, mm. Fiona, you've got some industry placement now, haven't you? Is that a part of your PhD? It is, yes. Uh, I'm doing a case studentship, which for part of that, I have to spend part of my time per year. I'm not sure exactly how much. I'm sure they'll tell me. Uh, out uh, working for IBM at Hartree. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I'm guessing that's in some kind of machine learning capacity. Yes, it is. Um, I'm largely working on the same stuff I would be for my regular project. I just get to use IBM's computing resources and also take advantage of their machine learning staff, who uh-huh. probably know a lot more about it than I do. <laughs> and I'm guessing they have a lot of computers. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I suppose we should get on with the show in hand. So, in the show this time, we have Tom Scrag and Michael Wright interviewing Stefan Corbell about the Nansei Observatory, the various telescopes there, and Stefan's research interests. And we have Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogoshanu, and Samuel Lesky taking a look at what's happening in the June night sky. But first, before all of that, we have Emma Alexander with this month's news. In the news this month, a star from far, far away, moon news aplenty, and updates from the New Horizons spacecraft's flyby of MU69. First up, news that a star in our Milky Way galaxy may not be as local as it first appears. A recent paper published in the journal Nature Astronomy by Shing et al. has shown that the star, named J1124 plus 4535, has an unusual chemistry more typical of nearby dwarf galaxies than our own. The magnitude 14 star, which is located in the constellation of Ursa Major, lies around 60,000 light-years from Earth, and was the target of a study by the Japanese Subaru Telescope. The star was found to have unusually low levels of metals such as magnesium, but unexpectedly high levels of the heavy element europium. This elemental signature is very different to its neighbouring stars, suggesting that it might be an interloper. In general, stellar neighbours usually have formed from the same building block materials, and consist of similar chemical makeups to each other. J1124's chemical makeup is much more similar to stars within the dwarf galaxies which orbit our Milky Way galaxy than our galaxy itself. Indeed, previous studies have found that the Milky Way formed by colliding with and absorbing smaller galaxies, but this new study has said it provides the clearest chemical signature yet of these formative galaxy mergers. Next, let's look a bit closer to home at our closest astronomical neighbour, the Moon, which has been making the headlines a lot recently. Firstly, there is the news that a new analysis of data from the Apollo missions has shed new light on potential lunar tectonic activity. Small shakes were found to occur on the Moon by detectors placed there by Apollo astronauts, but it wasn't clear if these were caused by the Moon itself or external forces like meteor strikes. 
Now, it's been formed that the epicentres of eight of these moonquakes can be traced to within 20 miles of lunar scarps, which are fault lines that can be seen stretching over the lunar surface. Moonquakes are also more likely to occur when the tidal forces from the Earth and the Sun exerted on it are greatest. The study by Waters et al. was published in the journal Nature Geoscience. On the other side of the moon to where the Apollo missions landed, the Chinese Chung'e 4 mission currently has the U-22 rover exploring the landscape of the South Pole Atkin Basin. The basin is of particular scientific interest due to its size and how it was formed. It's the largest, deepest and oldest impact crater on the moon. This means it provides a valuable insight into the iron and magnesium rich layer of rock underneath the moon's outer crust called the mantle. A study published last month in Nature by Lietal reports that materials rich in iron and magnesium have been found within the crater, and although it's not certain, they could be materials from the mantle, supporting current ideas of lunar formation and composition. The current thinking about lunar formation is that sometime early in Earth's history, we collided with another planetary body, releasing material which eventually formed the Moon. But this theory doesn't quite account for everything, including why we see differences between the Moon's near and far side. The far side of the Moon has a thicker crust than the near side, which another recent study may just explain. Zumatel report in the Journal of Geophysical Research that this difference may be due to another collision of planetary bodies, this one between the cooled and solidified Moon and something just a bit smaller than the dwarf planet Ceres. The team ran 360 simulations of different models, two of which ended up matching what we actually see in real life today. They both involved a collision between the near side of the Moon and an approximately 500 mile wide object travelling between 14 to 15,000 miles an hour. Both of these simulated collisions released debris that eventually rained back down on the lunar surface, but over on the far side, forming a layer 3 to 6 miles thick. This hypothetical collision could also explain differences observed in isotopes between the Earth and the Moon, particularly of potassium, phosphorus and various rare Earth elements. It's clear that we still have a lot to learn about the Moon, despite it being 50 years next month since the Apollo 11 mission saw Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin first step onto the lunar surface. However, it has been over 46 years since humans last set foot on the Moon, with any subsequent visitors being purely robotic. Plans are currently being put in place to change that. Jeff Bezos of private spaceflight company Blue Origin recently unveiled the so-called Blue Moon Lander, a spacecraft designed to deliver up to 6.5 tonnes of cargo and possible crew to the lunar surface. NASA have also announced that their planned mission to put humans back onto the moon by 2024 is called Artemis, named after the twin sister of Apollo in Greek mythology. NASA have confirmed that Artemis 1 will be an uncrewed mission around the Moon planned for 2020. It will be followed with a crewed lunar orbital mission, Artemis 2, around 2022, and followed finally by Artemis 3, that aims to put astronauts on the lunar surface in 2024, including the first woman. And finally, the first peer-reviewed scientific results have been released from New Horizons New Year's Day flyby of 2014 MU69. 4 billion miles from Earth, in the Kuiper Belt, MU69, nicknamed Ultima Thule, is the farthest ever object to have been visited by us. And ever since the data from the flyby started to be transmitted back to us on Earth, the New Horizons team have been working on its interpretation. 
They recently reported in the journal Science details of MU69's development, geology and composition. As suspected from the early images, it is a contact binary object, meaning that it formed from two separate objects that came together to make its iconic peanut shape. It is a lot flatter than anticipated, and the surface has features such as bright spots and patches, hills and troughs, and craters and pits. The largest depression is a five mile wide impact crater. However, the surface from the hole is fairly smooth, implying that MU69 has had a relatively calm history, with few violent collisions. Its red colour is believed to be caused by modified organic molecules. With still yet more data to be loaded from New Horizons, with the downlink not being complete for at least another year, there is still lots to learn about this distant object. Back to you in the studio. Thanks for that, Emma. Now Tom Scrag and Michael Wright interview Stefan Kobel about the Nansai Observatory, the instruments there and Stefan's research interests. Hello everybody, I'm Tom Scrag. I'm here with... I'm Michael Wright. And we're talking to uh, Stefan Kobel from... From France, so I, I'm heading the Nansai Observatory which is located in the countryside of uh, of uh, Orléans, maybe 80 kilometers south of Orléans, which is in fact 200 kilometers south of Paris. So it's a very, very remote place, which is some people like that, but also is good for doing radio astronomy, because usually this is a site where you do, do not have interference from industry or from people, because there is almost no people there. It's a big problem, radio interference from people. Um, yeah, we, we see it a lot at Jodrell Bank and uh, only yesterday we were, we were looking at a specific source that suddenly popped up right in the wrong place. So it's, it's good you, you don't suffer quite so much from that. We we do have some uh, some interference. In fact, it's impossible to escape from them and you, you can receive them from sometimes 200 kilometers far away. So unless you remove people all around, but it, it's impossible. So you, you have to live with them and do the, try to remove them when it's possible, and do your best to, to keep your, your site as clean as possible. Like with trees, for example, that's what we have in, around the observatory. But, uh, for example, when we will talk later about Ninufar, so we have to cut trees to make room for new, new telescopes. So, at some point, so, we have to make a compromise between the progress and dealing with the uh, instrument we have. So, yes, you always have to be good neighbors. And you don't want, normally, you don't want to be too far away from everybody because then you can't get staff. Yes. Or it's a long commute for people to get in and out and that has its own problems. That's correct. In fact, the situation of the Zodrebang is in fact similar because you are separated from the big city and in fact, the North Observatory is similar. Like we are eight, like 80 kilometers from, from Orléans, which is the closest big city oh, where right. some scientists are. So it's, at some point, uh, very close to what you see in Chodrell Bank Observatory. Uh, we have a railway line that passes right next to the uh, telescope, so <laughs> it has its own uh, challenges and conveniences, okay. if you like. Um, okay, good. Tell us a little bit about what the telescope, the current telescope does, and how it works. Because I've seen the pictures of it, but um, uh, to be you know, brutally honest, I've not gone into that much detail for some reason as to what the observatory does. Yeah, in fact, the observatory was created after the Second World War. One of the famous French resistance, in fact, it was uh, Yves Rocard, 
the future father of uh, Michel Rocard that you may have heard about him. He was a, a former socialist prime minister in France. And uh, so he was uh, in the UK and he heard about that uh, the, the British radar was uh, detecting the sun in radio. And so this came to to to, to his mind and, and decided that, uh, oh, okay, after the Second World War, we should, uh, we should start radio, radio astronomy in France. And then they first do tests in Paris. But then at some point the site was too small, so they decided to move to, to find a new spot, a new place. And so, of course, you need to find a clean place, not too far from communication. And uh, this is where uh, the observatory start, started in 1953. Then they first uh, do a lot of small, small experiments with the German radar, with Wolfsburg radar. And uh, then they make a dedicated observatory to interferometer to observe the sun, and this uh, telescope is still working. In fact, it's the only one in the world to make imaging of uh, the solar corona, uh, radio imaging of the solar corona. Then they, they, they built the new, uh, well, they, at that time the new, in 60, 65, what we call the big radio telescope. Still the four or the five, depending on how you count, in terms of size, is uh, equivalent to like uh, almost uh, 96, uh, the diameter in terms of diameter for the if you convert it's not a it's not a spherical it's a rectangular telescope yeah it's a, a transit yes it's a so transit is it telescope yeah it's terrible yes okay you can observe something like eighty six percent of the sky the sky is accessible oh wow so, okay it's so even good. if it's not uh, you cannot move it uh, in all directions you can still access a significant fraction of the sky. Okay, I mean, so you can track sources as well. Yes, so, so you can time. track yeah. source for one, a maximum of one hour. Right. And uh, so this was uh, the main telescope for, for a long time. This telescope typically observed in the gigahertz uh, range, so observed pulsar, uh, hydrogen, I mean, whatever, flaring star, quite uh, typical stuff in, uh, in the field. And then uh, another instrument was built to observe Jupiter, radio emission from Jupiter on the Sun again for spectroscopic at low, very low frequency. That was in the 70s. And so for and then for almost two two decades, no new instrument was built. Then so they created uh, like a RD uh, research and development group there. So they are experts in electronics and microelectronics. So they do instrumentation for for future radio telescopes. They are involved at some point in SKA also. And, uh, so the, but at, at the end of the, oh, 2000, 2010, so there were new revolutions coming in radio with, uh, especially with a low frequency. Mm-hmm. It was now possible, uh, to observe again, but low frequency, but with the uh, advent of new computing facilities, meaning that you are able to, to make uh, observations at low frequency again. And uh, this was, uh, we have a low power station, so there is one in UK, in Chilbolton. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, so we decided to have one in, in Nancy, so that was in 2010. But at, at, at this point, some people like uh, Michel Tazer, Philippe Zarka in France, decided that to make uh, an hard French contribution. And uh, so they have a prototype of what we call a low power super station. And we decided to to build up a new experiment that we can connect to the to the low far correlator too. 
And uh, this is called Nenufa. So we are almost 60% in terms of construction. Oh, right. So Nenufa <laughs> at the end is like equivalent to, if I simplify it, it will be like uh, equivalent of 38 local stations. So it will be more sensitive than uh, the full LOFA. It's still at low frequency, so it's below the FM band from 10 to 85 uh, megahertz. Right. So it will observe uh, the scientific uh, con uh, context. It's similar to, to LOFA, but we can go to much lower frequency, meaning that we can start to probe the dark ages. I mean, which is right. okay. the, the period <coughs> of uh, the early universe when you when you start to to form, for example, the first star, the first uh, star, which is called what we call the colonization of uni universe, but mm -hmm. you can even start to study the universe bef before that, when the universe was available at one hundred or two million uh, years old. Okay. So basically, <coughs> we have this kind of the three historical in uh, instruments, and then uh, two new instruments with no far and no far. And then we have additional instrument, but this is uh, like demonstrator or minor antenna. So. Yes, yes. We have. Um, is there a lot of people based at the at, um, at the observatory? Or yeah, well, it's a lot remote. <coughs> there is in fact the the, so the site is big. Big is like uh, one one hundred fifty hectares. So and we have commonly uh, like fifty people working on site. One third is engineer, research engineer, but then we need to have uh, like a technician for the maintenance of the instrument. We need to yeah. have people working in, uh, in terms of um, mechanics, in terms of uh, electricity, in terms of also we need to have some, uh, someone to cook. A good, uh, you, yes. you know the French food. <laughs> so we need to have our own cooker. And of course, uh, so you need people for administration, so computing facilities, so Meaning that at the end, the gardener, I mean, this is important. Yeah. And so at the end, we, we have like 50% on site. But the particularity is there is only one scientist on site is the director. So the, oh, sci okay. the, sci the scientists are outside the observatory. That's the way to handle management. Put them 80 kilometers yeah. away. <laughs> it's important to have the contact between the, between the scientists and the people that run the observatory on, on the daily basis. Absolutely. And in fact, this is I, one of the reasons I came here is to see how people do here. So, also. Okay. Oh, you missed Tuesday. Tuesday is the day when most, most students go. Yeah. Uh, it tends to be the Pulsar group plus yeah. uh, Spectrometry and some of the others. So, we take our students out there, postgrads, postdocs, MSc, some of the mm. undergrads doing final year projects. So, they go once a week. Um, to maintain that connection. Yeah. Now, this is a telescope, it's not just big data files. Yeah. This is where it is, this is how it works, this is the, the guts of the operation. I will go, so we go there tomorrow. Yeah, it'd be very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. So, are you trying to see how you would turn what we're doing then and try and work out how that would fit with your situation? Where your telescope is far further from civilization than the situation we're in. Well, I don't plan to copy you. Yeah. It's just, it's always good to see, uh, yeah. what people do in different places. I mean, it's, you cannot copy and paste, I mean, what's happening in a place to do in a different places, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see, uh, how people, uh, how you run the observatory, the problem people face. Yeah. Because, uh, you always have problems with facing when you have too many projects, for example, how do you, how do you do that? 
managing that. And yeah. to, to share the picture, to share the, the workload of, of the various people. Yeah. Okay, the, the main instrument, just to, to come back around to that for a moment. Um, <clears throat> is it, has it been updated? Is it, does it have multiple antennas? Is it a path? Is it, um, a face to red feed? Um, or is it a simple cross dipole at the moment? You're talking about the, the big radio telescope? Or? Yes. So mostly it's, uh, the big telescope on the pole is, uh, there is a, the main instrument is a pulsar, uh, dispenser. So you do, it's mainly used for observation of pulsar. Like uh, 60 or 70 percent of the time. Right. So then we have a broadband, um, uh, receiver. Okay. So standard broadband receiver. And then uh, to do a spectroscopy or wideband, uh, continuum observation. This is basically, I mean, the, the two receiver that is available for the, right, the domain radio telescope. So. The, the, for the long time, uh, it was not in, involved in the VLDI observation because the duration of observation was limited to a maximum of one hour. Yes. So this is what the, the reason. But now with the, the fact that the other telescopes are more sensitive, they are broadband backend, mean that uh, this is something that maybe in the future could be reconsidered. So. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, the, you see this mounted um, on the ground, on a tower, but on the ground, so it's relatively accessible. So if you wanted to make changes, it's, it's easy to do. Uh, well, I am not the expert, the expert in technical things, but okay. uh, uh, yeah, I think they can uh, they can work on the on the receiver. Yeah. Okay. Now it's just um, on the level on the big telescope that's over the bank. You have to take the lift up to the middle. Then walk across to the centre, up through the hole in the dish, and then climb the ladders up mm. to the uh, receiver cabin on the top. And of course, yeah. if you take the equipment up there, mm. it can be a bit long-winded. The configuration of the telescope in the big telescope is that the receiver is not on the on the moving antenna. So you have it's, uh, it's on the cabinet that is moving mm-hmm. in the focus of the telescope. Yes, so that we can adjust. When the source moves on the sky, so the focus of the telescope is moving. So this is how we follow it. So we have in the cabinet that move in the, in the three different dimensions. So uh-huh, it's on, so on, on the track, okay. and then it's moving also upward. So this is where the receiver are. Ah, okay. So, so it's not quite as simple as focusing to a point, yeah. but it's uh, not the, yeah, the receiver is not attached to the telescope. So. Right. Yeah. Okay. It sounds. It sounds like it would be a good advantage then if you wanted to change things on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, how did you get into radio astronomy, or astronomy generally, and radio astronomy specifically? Uh, we're doing a PhD. Okay, yeah, we're yep. doing. Started to do peer, to do radio radio observation during a PhD, but it was like almost well, close to twenty five years ago almost when I started my PhD. Right. Not, not, not yet, but, so, yeah, but at that time, uh, I was, I am interested in many things, so meaning that, uh, I was also doing X-rays. In fact, uh, if I should, uh, characterize myself, so I'm, I'm a very, uh, multi-wavelength observer. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of radio, but I also do, uh, X-rays with satellites like Chandra, uh, like RXT or, Whatever, uh, X-ray satellite Swift, but I also remember the Fermi collaboration. So,
so I do high energy gamma rays with Fermi's. So, so I did a lot of work with that. For example, for black hole detection of jets from black hole in gamma rays. So I'm working from jets from black hole mostly. And, uh, but from an observation point of view, from radio up to high energy. So mm-hmm. almost all frequency. I do radio, X-ray, hard X-ray, but I also sometimes use optical infrared. But I don't do reduction in these two wavelengths. But, but I like to, 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 to observe in all wavelengths because it's like you observe the various facets on a given ob- uh, object. So on most of the time, you have a lot of, um, Various information. It's quite challenging because it means that you have to to conduct all observations simultaneously, yeah. and uh, that because these was a variable. So if you want to to have a, a meaning of your observation, so you need to have all observation to be conducted together. And when you have satellite, when you have observer, observation in Australia or or in Chile, so you it's not always easy to have this simultaneous observation. Yes, it's it's one of the downsides. If you do multi-massing, you get a lot more information about the phenomena that you're observing. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's much coordinating different yeah. facilities and resources. Yeah. And then a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And the interest is to work in collaboration, so you meet a lot of people, so that's quite interesting to me. Yes. So <clears throat> you mentioned X-ray astronomy. What, what are your specific research interests then? What do you do work on on a daily basis? Uh, okay, well, on a daily basis. So right now, I'm, it's mostly managing the observatory of NOFED. So that's a significant fraction of my task. I am also uh, I was in charge sometimes uh, of the master of program of the in Paris area. Mm-hmm. So, but then I gave up that now. So we were in collaboration with other people, but now. So I do a bit of teaching. And uh, so in, I have a research group in Saclay, so close to Paris. So my main interest is on transient, so it's variable sources. Okay. And yeah. uh, mostly it's accreting, accreting sources, accreting X-ray binaries. So like black hole, neutron star system, and binary yes. system. And so we we found, I mean, that these this sources are producing powerful or powerful relativistic jets. And so we try to characterize the emission from this jet. That are typically you have like electron spiraling in magnetic fields. So this will make like we call what we call synchrotron radiation. Mm-hmm. So this is typically what we observe in radio. But then we discover for some of the system, I mean this emission can be observed up to infrared, optical, on we have a big debate on whether or not the jet can produce X-ray emission. So this is what we call the compact jet. But then we observe like a discrete ejection event where we can resolve them in, uh, in even in radio, of course, and where you, you see bullet of plasma ejecting from the system. So this is typically observed also in radio. But then we, and sometimes at uh, apparent speed greater than the speed of light, and, uh, but we also detected that them in, in X-ray with Chandra, for example. We have resolved jets yeah. where we, we see the bullet of, uh, of plasma when they interact with interstellar medium. So you have a shock that accelerates the particle to very high energy. And this is when you, you start to see a very high energy emission from the system. So you detect them in X-ray. So this is quite a new, uh, new topic. Yeah. So is that, 
um, x-ray from the jet or x-ray from the interaction with the, the shock front being the, <coughs> the interaction point with the instar media? For this specific case, this is uh, x-ray that are produced during the interaction of uh, with the shocks. The shock right, front, okay, the front front. shock front. Yes. Yeah. But then you see <laughs> the front moving also uh, along the, 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 the bullet. So, so that's, that must mean you get quite high resolution. Um, to, to actually to be able to resolve that change in, in location? Yeah, because, uh, uh wait, you, the, res the resolution is with the Chandra Observatory, so you can go down to hyperarchical. So you can do be better in, in, in radio, of course, uh, depending on the, observa the observatory. But, uh, but then, because it's traveling very fast, so it's moving away from the, from the black hole, so it can, Sometimes close, go uh, close to uh, what we call almost to one astronomical unit, even more than that. So, uh, yeah, even more than uh, alpha parsec, even. Yeah. yeah. So, which is quite large for 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 black hole. So we observe sometimes like alpha, like the size, of, uh, yes, alpha alpha minus thirty arc seconds for the point. You say that's quite large for. A for black holes, what are you typically thinking about when you think of the sort of dimensions that you usually work with? Well, we, we sometimes we observe the event like four years after after the ejection event, so meaning you are very, very far. I mean, when you consider something that is moving at the speed of the light, so it's very far because usually, I mean, you have something that is, uh, you observe, for example, if you observe an X-ray, so you see uh, like variation in the equation flow, this is typically something you observe on millisecond time scale. So you compare something that is a millisecond time scale or second time scale to something that you observe on scale of years. So this is very different. It means that you are very far from the system. Okay, you mentioned you, well, that's disconcerting. I'll start that again. <laughs> you mentioned you had a research group. Uh, how many people in the, the group? Um, Sacré is a big, uh, it's one of the biggest research group, uh, research uh, unit in France. So, like, on site, Sacré, we have like, like 300, or 300 persons, even, even more than that, like, among that, like, at least one, 150 permanent researchers. So it's a very big group. So, myself, my group is like, uh, less than 10 persons, so, so, yeah. Yeah, the group and, is that the man who starts for? Oh, okay. Why? Think of something at the moment. <laughs> I realise I've asked about two things in the whole interview, so. No, no, that's perfectly fine. That's I'm conscious, I'm keeping an eye on the time. So. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've maybe got five more minutes. Yeah. Yeah. With how it goes. <coughs> okay, so you, you said you had, say, about ten people in the group, PhD postdocs. How is that split then? So, Roughly, how's that split between number of PhDs, number of... Okay. The French system is a bit different from the British system in the sense that we have way less uh, PhD students. My feeling is that in the UK, is, uh, it's quite easier to get uh, PhD students in group. In France, it's not that easy. It's more difficult to find the funding. We have way less opportunity to get this kind of funding for students for postdocs. The advantage of the French system is that you have more permanent positions compared to, to the British system. So you have a drawback and you have the advantage and 
meaning it's a little bit you have more in the institute you have more permanent at the temporary position, which I think is a reverse in the case. Yes, certainly most of the people here are either um, PhD students or PDRAs who are on yeah. one year or three year contracts. Right? It's always a bit of a scramble. Um, I come from industry, so yeah. I, I feel for them. <laughs> Not that necessarily jobs in most industries are guaranteed to last longer, but there's always the feeling you're not on a fixed term contract. But yeah, it does engender a lot of competition. Mm. Um, and can engender a lot of change, which is not necessarily a bad thing again. Um, people moving around, you get a lot of interaction, but not a lot of stability. Yeah, in French system, typically, I mean, at best, I mean, one quarter of the PhD student will get a permanent position. If we compare the number of, of, of positions offered compared to the number of students. But even on the open position, I mean, you also have people that are coming from abroad. So we have quite a high significant fraction of those people that are higher that are coming from the world, from all countries. Yeah. Do you find um, being based around an observatory, you tend to get a lot more um, uh, non-French um, students, if I can put it that way, a lot more people from around the world coming to join the group, whereas if it was not specifically Connected with a, a you know a physical observatory where there's lots of opportunities for the, the university-based research group. Uh, not totally sure on that. Okay. So okay. not totally sure. So yeah. Uh, it's just interesting. We don't do many comparisons between um, um, British and French. Yeah, because uh, the students, the students, uh, yeah, but will not come from the observatory, so they would come from. From my research group, which is close to Paris, so it's yeah. a different different hat. So I have one Italian collaborator at the moment, so we probably have a new one, French one starting. So in fact, I will say if I compare in the past, I I thought my students were were from abroad. So okay, yeah, well, it depends on the source of funding. So usually, yes. <laughs> if you have oh, Europe, if you have European money, you are not allowed to. Your people from your country, so ah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, what do you like to do outside of um, work? Do you have any oh. hobbies you want to talk about? Or <laughs> well, I do a lot of, I do a lot of sport, okay, and uh, so I do kayaking, okay, uh, I do fitness, and I do a lot of running, so trail running this last year, right? So, so does working in an observatory that's sort of far out from cities and in nature, does that help that then? Well, I, I don't know if it's being far from the city, just from, it, keep, it helps you to keep you breathing, to sometimes yes. go and uh, escape the stress. So you take your shoes and you go away, whenever, where, wherever you are. Even here, I, I, I brought my, my shoes, my running shoes with me. Right. So I plan to go running tonight, probably. So where also to meet new people. Mm-hmm. And from different horizons, and, yes. uh, which I like. Uh, it's also nice to be in the countryside, so you discover many places. And uh, whenever I can, yeah, I take my shoes and travel and, uh, and go. And I'm go so for, for long distance. No, no worry. You yeah. can, you can be, um, for example, uh, take your cross Corsica with your, when you go running, and then for a few days, and then, yeah. and that's wow. it. 
certainly easier than lugging golf clubs around. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You I'm glad I have a go. Yeah. Yes, you need to to keep enough food with you, but yep. Okay. Okay. Stefan, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, and thank you. And uh, I hope your visit tomorrow goes well. Yes. Oh, I enjoy being here. The first time in Manchester. And, uh, whether you like to come back. Oh, yes, we'd love to see you again. And we're looking forward to the talk this afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Tom and Michael. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So, who wants to go first? I guess you're up first. You're the lead (laughs) presenter. Mm, Yes. You know, it's my first time doing this. It's very intimidating. <laughs> no, how could, how could I, how could I freak out? I've got such wonderful co-hosts. Oh, it's <laughs> all right. Kind of It'll be all right on the night. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hang on. <laughs> okay, so we've had a bit of a lunar-themed episode uh, this month. So I am going to talk a little bit about something that's not on the moon, but will hopefully help us if we decide to stay there long term. So I'm sure both of you two are aware, and probably many of our listeners, that staying in space long term has some effects on the body. Mm. Uh, You lose things like bone density, you can lose muscle mass if you don't exercise, and uh, there are obviously some psychological effects if you're isolated out there. So what's recently been happening is that NASA have done what we almost always do when we want to see what would happen but we don't want to do it with people yet. They sent some mice to the ISS. I was just about to say they, they were going to send some mice up there. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this is the first mouse experiment, but this is this was a long-term one. So they sent up mice, uh, two groups, one group who are 16 weeks old and one group who are 32 weeks old. So that's both, both of these are adults in mice years. Okay. It's just one of them's a slightly older group and one of them's sort of slightly younger adults. And they were up there for a maximum of about a month, which, if you put that in human terms, that's about a mission of two to three years. Oh, okay. So that's maybe miles and back with spending a significant amount of time on the planet's surface. Mm-hmm. And because it's the ISS, of course, it's all microgravity. Ah, uh, of course. So they were aiming to just see how the mice responded to it, uh, how how well they kept up their weight whether they kept up doing normal mouse things, that sort of thing, and just make sure that everything was okay, because it's a decent predictor, at least in terms of uh, of how their bodies respond, if not necessarily their minds, because obviously slightly different levels of intellect there. Mm. We all know, we've all, who've read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, know that mice are far smarter. Who are we to tell what lurks in the minds of mice? Mm, exactly. So overall findings were actually pretty good. They had a control group of mice on the ground of the same ages uh, from the same labs. And what they found out was that overall the mice in space did pretty well. They were eating about as much as normal. Uh, They were still grooming each other and grooming themselves. They were doing social things. They were doing the things which mice ought to do only in microgravity. Though apparently there was a a little (laughs) bit of a fuss in the early days, while well, the mice had to figure out how to walk in, in microgravity. Oh, okay. But eventually, apparently, they got the hang of it and started walk- they started walking on two legs for a little bit, but they went back to all fours once they figured it out and were apparently using their tails as sort of rudders to help hold them in place. Oh, 
Okay. I guess we don't have that ability, Seamus. Nope. Not you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next space advance. But no, they did do one thing which was very odd and very interesting to see. So, you know, motorcyclists doing the wheel of death where they end up essentially driving on the walls of uh, just a big cylinder. All right, yeah. The mice were doing this on the walls of their cages. They were just running around in loops. <laughs> and specifically, this was the younger group of mice. So apparently it started out with just a couple of them, you know, sort of one or two decided to run like a lap. But eventually they started doing more and more loops, and eventually it became a group behaviour. So they had all these mice zipping around in their cage. So it was only the younger group that took this on? It was actually only the younger group, which is very interesting. Can you imagine Uh, the older group looking on from their little compartment and seeing this happening and going, Oh, these kids. I can't be doing with that. It was, I think, maybe an older one did it once or twice, but the amount of time spent doing it was much, much higher for the younger group. They had to have a sit-down afterwards. <laughs> so they're, they're not exactly sure why they would be doing this. There's a bunch of theories. And the first one is stress. So think of, say, like lions in a cage pacing around, that sort of idea, because, you know, being launched into space and then kept in microgravity is a bit of a stressful situation for yeah. a mouse who doesn't really know what's going on. But it could be a couple of other things. It could just be boredom. Because, you know, they had to launch the cage into space. It couldn't be anything with a lot of fancy bits and pieces for them to to play in and climb on. Because it had to to make it all the way up there and still leave uh, an ability for people to observe what the mice were up to. So it might just be a way of passing the time. It might even be fun. Because... uh, uh, it could just be something like exercising, you know, just getting a little dopamine boost from running around. Uh, but, you know, sort of like running in a wheel, like mice in cages do. But apparently even wild mice will do that when they're just out there in the open, no no lack of other things to do. They'll just sometimes do it for fun. So it's possible that that's the reason. They just found a new and interesting way to exercise. Which I suppose makes sense if they're sort of lacking uh, like any sort of climbing apparatus or other things to explore. They might just zip around for a bit of fun. And that does actually add up a little bit with it being the, only the younger group doing it, because uh, as mice get older, they're less likely to exercise. But at this point, we don't really know. But it is really something to see. Uh, NASA have published a video. Uh, which, of course they have. Yeah, I'll include that in the write-up uh, <laughs> of this section, so you can all have a look and see these mice zipping about. All right, should we head on over to Tiana, whatever you've brought for us this week? Mm, all right, so, um, yeah, I thought I would uh, talk about something which is, I think it's fair to say, caused, caused some uh, rambles among astronomers um, over the last few weeks, uh, which is the uh, launch of the... Um, um, Starlink uh, satellites a, a few weeks ago. So on the 24th of May, 60 satellites were launched into low, low Earth orbit via SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, uh, and this marked the commencement of the American aerospace company SpaceX's Starlink project, uh, which aims to install a constellation of around 12,000 satellites 
and three orbital shells by the mid 2020s. Uh, and they will use this for uh, to supply uh, internet communications, especially to very remote regions of the world. Uh, now, on the day of, after the first launch, uh, video has started popping up uh, of amateur astrom- astronomers who were spotting the satellites flying overhead. Uh, I'll put a link to one of those videos in the uh, episode description. They're really uh, pretty extraordinary just for how bright uh, the satellites are. Uh, contrary to expectations uh, and contrary to what SpaceX C- CEO Elon Musk had stated uh, on Twitter previously, uh, the satellite train was very easily visible to the naked eye, uh, even uh, at midnight hours. Uh, this has elicited some c- uh, concern from uh, certain astronomers who are worried about the possible impact on ground-based astronomy. Uh, now, Musk claimed that the satellites would be too dark to see while the stars were visible, but uh, initial calculations indicate that once the first wave of satellites are launched, um, around 15 will be visible clearly above the horizon for the three or four hours after sunset and before sunrise, which means that at higher latitudes, including the UK, uh, the satellites will be visible uh, all through the night, um, all th- during the sub- during the summer. Um, so, ground-based optical astronomy will likely be made much more difficult by the presence of the Starlink satellites. One report that I saw calculated that the uh, satellites will spend most of their time at around seventh to fifth magnitude. That's bright. That's, that is. That is. That's bright. That's less bright than what was originally feared. Um, when the the um, the initial observations put them at around second or third magnitude. For those who are not au fait with the magnitude system, they were originally classified between one and six, I believe. That's all sky, all stars in the night sky, yeah, visible I to the naked eye. Believe it was, yeah. Where one is the brightest and six is the dimmest. Obviously, with the aid of telescopes, we can now see fainter stars. So you'll hear sometimes about magnitude. Seven and greater. Mm, I think Hubble can see down to around magnitudes twenty-eight to thirty, yeah. but obviously that's going to space with okay. some quite specialist equipment. Yeah, from the ground, you're unless you've got one hell of a telescope, and even then, you're not really going to see that far down. Yeah, yeah, no. So it's seventh to fifth magnitude is really, really bright. And, uh, the big thing is that when, when the, um, the sunlight can catch the uh, solar panels, uh, and they can occasionally flare up to even second or first magnitude. Um, so Musk stated on Twitter that unlike the ISS, the satellites would not be visible by eye because they are much smaller and don't contain any blinking lights. However, the ISS is visible not because of the blinking lights, but because of the sunlight reflecting off the mm, just because uh, it's so solar big. panels. Yeah. Um, so uh, clearly, this has uh, caused many astronomers to doubt whether space SpaceX had given sufficient thought towards how they're affecting the night sky. Well, by the sounds of it, it doesn't sound like they've done a whole lot of testing on this, if any. No, it doesn't. I know I've seen at least one image someone took. I think it was something like a 10-second exposure, mm. which 
in terms of astrophotography, that's not all that yeah. long, but you could still see the satellites streaking through the image. Mm. Yes, that's no, a bright white line. It's really extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I remember rightly, one of the issues with it is that they aren't strictly predictable because uh, the satellites will slightly alter their orbits if they think there's going to they're going to risk a collision uh, with debris. So we yeah. can't even just straightforwardly remove them. So they won't always follow fixed paths for algorithms to remove. Exactly. Because, of course, the bigger optical observatories will have this infrastructure already in place to deal with existing satellites and ISS passes and such. Mm-hmm. But but smaller observatories, or even just people in their back gardens with the little four- to six-inch reflectors, won't have access to any yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is just the sheer number that there are going to be I mean, you said it was how many? 12,000? Altogether? Eventually, yeah. So the first mm-hmm. phase is going to be, I think, uh, 2,200. That, that's what they're aiming to launch by 2025, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. Uh, and then after that, it's really going to ramp up until eventually it's 12,000 um, within low Earth orbit. And the problem with that is that if you want to make, say, internet access continuously available via these satellites, then there's going to be one continuously visible. Yeah, Yeah, there always has to be at least one up in the sky. So that's, as more of them get launched, then that's just going to worsen the situation for optical astronomers and possibly some others aside. I know at the very least you can detect satellites with uh, radio telescopes. It was an experiment I did in undergrad. Uh, so that could potentially start interfering with things like radio as well. Oh, yeah, it, yeah. it will, certainly. So uh, the, the satellites are, are going to be working in the uh, KA and KU bands, as well as the V band, uh, none of which are really used for radio astronomy. But uh, there's st- some people are still concerned that, you know, there's always going to be leakage, and uh, uh, they do affect... Um, uh, radio strong, uh, observatories in some way, and it's not clear how the aggregate of of, of it will affect us. But uh, that's definitely something that uh, will only become clear as as these things all start transmitting, because uh, the ones that they sent up uh, a couple of weeks ago were test satellites, so they weren't actually communicating with with the ground. Uh, but there are um, coming launches being planned for within the year. Which uh, will have communicating facilities, and we'll, we'll only see then how how it's going to affect us. So that's the the communication has been kind of frustrating that we don't know how it's going to uh, impact our science. Yeah, mm. a lot of astronomers that I've seen on Twitter, for example, this was up, this was there a lot. If you are an astronomy person or follow astronomy people, you probably saw what I'm talking about. Mm. There are a great deal of people who are very concerned about what this is going to do because as, as you said Jake we don't all have the facilities to no. to account for things like this I know like one this. of my old colleagues from back at Sussex Darren Baskell has been speaking out about this he's he's been a passionate campaigner for dark skies for as long as I've known him yeah so I think it's important to understand that researchers can and do work around visible satellites in the observations uh, what makes Starlink different is the scale of the operation and the precedence it sets. Uh, so there are companies like Boeing, Amazon, and even Facebook, which have plans in place for low-orbit satellite constellations. 
Uh, and earlier today, the uh, International Astronom- Astronomical Union put out a statement expressing general concern with the direction that the com- commercialization of space is, is taking. Um, I think so I've seen that sort of idea. It's sort of like uh, like build your own constellation, only the constellation is advertising, insert brand here. Mm. I was about to ask, were these other networks by Boeing, say, will they also be for communications purposes? Uh, I haven't read that much into it, but as I understand, uh, that's the idea. Um, Amazon, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called, um, Amazon Kuiper. Oh, okay. is, uh, They're going to deliver parcels by satellite. Oh. <laughs> that would be impressive. If only, no, the, it's it's going to be uh, exact same thing as, as the space. Returns thing. will be horrendous, though. Oh, oh goodness, can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So uh, the one quote that I saw on Twitter was, um, I can't remember the person's name, but a uh, researcher at Stanford who said that uh, for astronomers, it's really not going to be, it's got to be more a nuisance than a disaster. But uh, really, it's about the, the kind of precedent it sets and, and the idea that people should have a say about how the sky looks, you know, not companies. Mm. Hmm. Well, we can stay with that. Yeah. We can stay with that thing because, unfortunately, Jake's got another bit of a rant lined up. Oh. I'm afraid it's that time of the show again. <laughs> Now, I was going to do just a nice, wholesome little piece about handing the show over, because as of the time that you're listening to us, myself and Naomi have handed over the Jodcast keys to Michael Wright, who is producing this episode, and to yourselves, Fiona and Tian, on the other side of the table from me. Yep. So I'm sure all of you listeners out there will join me in wishing them well Thank in this venture. Thanks, listeners. So actually, what I have here, I haven't had the chance to do this yet, so I may as well do it live. I'm a little... And this one. So I have here in my hands a key to the studio. Oh, lovely. Thank you. And a key to the equipment drawer just behind me. Ooh. Shall we share it? I think we'll have to share. (laughs) Okay. I don't think it's going to work very well if we try and cut it in half. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's not how keys work. True. Well, yes. Yeah. All right, so that with that little bit of official business concluded, I was going to do just a nice little wholesome piece about handing over the show. But the stars aligned and looked down on me and said, Jake, if you think you're going to get away with doing a wholesome piece to Mike, you are sadly mistaken. (laughs) Because a couple of weeks back, we at Manchester, not the department, but the University of Manchester as a whole, had rather a special guest in town. So we went out and saw a lecture given by one Dr. Jim Green, who is the current chief scientist at NASA. And that talk was titled, The Importance of the Moon. Again, we're continuing with our lunar theme that we've got running through this episode. So he was discussing NASA's current and future plans for humans, and specifically NASA, Americans, to go back to the moon, which I believe Emma is covering in the news of this month. I believe so, yes. So hopefully you will now be up to speed with those. And another major theme running through Dr. Green's talk was the moon being important in terms of the natural resources that it holds, and how those could potentially be exploited not just by astronauts or people living on the moon long term, but by private companies. 
And I'm going to be honest with you, us in the audience, well, me and my contemporaries, found that a little bit disquieting. And it turns out that the moon does have an awful lot of potential wealth locked up inside of it, which I previously wasn't aware of, so this talk was a learning experience for me. Mm. I wasn't aware of that either. As far as I knew, it was just regolith. Mm. But in that regolith, there is ice. And a very great deal of it, particularly towards the poles. Oh, that is significant. Because that's one of the major concerns for long-term space habitation, and even things like the ISS, is water. Yeah. Because one of the other proposals that's floating around at the moment is from the European Space Agency, is to build a space village, having people up there living on the moon permanently as a moon base. And so obviously you're going to need a supply of water to do that. And if you can get at some of this hundreds of millions of tons of ice that is up there, then that makes the establishment of such a lunar colony a lot easier. Because water is great stuff. You can drink it. You can wash with it. If you're British, you can use it to make tea, which is very important. Mm -hmm. Very important. Yeah, without which our lives would be bleak and miserable. True. Mm. (laughs) That's the tea. (laughs) It's absolutely true, though. I mean, if you knew how religiously some people here view their tea breaks. Mm. But another more lucrative prospect still is that if you take that water and split it up into its constituent atoms, hydrogen and oxygen, you can turn it into rocket Rocket fuel. fuel. (laughs) This is actually a plot point in The Martian. Mm. And so once you've got a working fuel depot up on the moon... You can either keep that there, obviously, to supply craft coming in and going back, bringing in food or colonists or whatever you want to get out there. Mm. Or if you scale up your operation, you can potentially start looking at that fuel for export purposes back to Earth, establishing what we might call a true space economy. And another prospect to consider is that the moon is also actually quite rich in rare minerals, including things like platinum. Ooh which has obvious applications for things like catalytic converters for cars. And that is and that is a concern here, that as our technology is getting more and more advanced, we're starting to need increasingly many of the things like the rare earth metals. Mm. And there's only a finite supply here on Earth. Exactly. So it then follows, I guess, as what you could call a logical next step, that we would then look to the moon and by extension other rocky bodies in the solar system, such as asteroids, to fuel that. I've certainly heard of asteroid mining before, particularly in the water context again, but definitely in terms of the rare minerals as well. Mm. Because a lot of the rocks which are in the asteroids uh, were ones which were formed at the same time the planets were, right? Yeah. So, logically, they have some of the same materials. And... They're conveniently not, say, embedded a couple of miles in the Earth's crust. They are floating around in space, but if you can get there and get it back, that could be very profitable. Yes. So there have been a couple of studies about this, considering prospects of deep space mining. And one of the big documents that I found when I was doing a bit of research for this piece after seeing Dr. Green's talk was a report that was published in November 2018 of last year Mm -hmm. titled Commercial Lunar Propellant Architecture, a Collaborative Study of Lunar Propellant Production. I'll see if I can try to link to it in the show notes. Fair warning, it's about 150 pages, but 
if you've got the time, you can dig into it. And it really is a complete look at whether lunar ice mining can be done, what equipment you might need to get up there, how you're going to get sources of power and heat, because the extraction methods that they're looking at are sublimination. So it's turning the ice from a solid directly into a gas and then capturing it somehow. Yeah, because naturally you can compress that in the ways that you can't solid ice or liquid water. Yeah. And it's also looking at things like potential customers, potential turnover. Yeah, so it's it's something that's been identified as a multi-billion dollar industry just as starting out. But there's been some pushback from that from another study that's been submitted recently, which suggests that we humans ought to limit ourselves in exploiting these resources to just using one-eighth of what is available rather than just going through for all of it. Is that for a reason beyond the simple one of, well, if we run out, then what? Well, that is what it's designed to hopefully prevent. Because, say, we do go out and exploit the moon and, say, the Galilean moons and the asteroid belt too, its fullest potential with just full exponential growth. Because as economies work, they grow a bit, demand then typically grow, typically goes up, then that rate of growth increases, and then the demand increases, so you get this runaway cycle. Mm-hmm. And if there's one thing we know about cycles... It's that if you're building it on endless growth, that's not going to last. It won't last if you have a finite amount of resources to play with. Exactly. Which we very much do in this case. Yes. And so what these two authors have done here... So the study is titled, How much of the solar system should we leave as wilderness? By a Martin Elvis and a Tony Milligan of Harvard and Smithsonian and King's College London, respectively. And so they argue but that by leaving seven-eighths of the solar system as wilderness, we will then use up that one-eighth that we quote-unquote can exploit in about 400 years. And then with further doublings associated with that, that would then give us 60 years to then shift the economy again. Right as opposed to if we just used it all at once. I mean, what what quantities are we talking about here? You said hundreds of billions of tonnes of ice. Well, hundreds of millions Hundreds of, of millions, sorry. Hundreds of millions of tonnes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, slight difference in scale there. But yes, 400 years does sound like the sort of time frame where we could alter our ways of using things, maybe find it with come up with alternate places to get these resources as well. Mm. Because, I mean... True, but we could do that now, right? I mean, it's what we should be doing. We should, should be, be doing, doing that. But it seems like the, the, the aim is for perpetual exponential growth. Ah, yeah. uh, well, what the authors hope for here is that the economy, the space economy circularizes in that we're able to reuse and recycle a lot more these various minerals and materials that we extract. So then that demand for new resources coming in decreases significantly, Mm. or if not, eliminated altogether. There is already uh, sort of a drive to do this here. It's particularly in things like like phones, for example. Uh, Phones do have some of those rare earth minerals as pretty significant components. 
especially as we get into things which are more and more advanced and have sort of finer circuitry and the like. I'm not a phone expert, don't quote me. <laughs> uh, but there's already a drive to see if these are things which can be recycled, because at the moment we do have a finite amount on Earth, and while there might be some we can get more of on the moon or on asteroids, it's, it's still something we need to consider today, absolutely. Hmm, yeah, I agree. So another area that of this that I wanted to talk about is that in this previous report talking about getting fuel stations established on the moon, there is a section about legal bits and pieces. And I should say at this point that I am not a space lawyer, not by any stretch oh, of the not. imagination. I'm disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you wonder what I've been studying for. Yeah, because once you start considering operations like this, you then have to start asking questions. Who owns the moon, if anybody? Mm. Who has the rights to go about extracting these resources, if anybody? Mm. I mean, at How the does moment, it's at the moment it's considered sort of neutral territory, isn't it? It is. So this goes back to the exist or well, the existing legislation regarding this, as far as I can tell, is the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which was signed by all of the major space powers and those that have become space power since during the space race of the 60s. Mm. And the relevant bits from this are Articles 1 and 2, and I'll read little bits of those to you now. So Article 1 states, The exploration and use of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries, irrespective of their degree of economic or scientific development, and shall be the province of all mankind. Hmm. Okay, so that sort of very egalitarian space is for everyone, even yeah. if they can't necessarily afford to go there. Yeah, so it was clearly written with the future in mind. Mm -hmm. I guess for a little bit of historical context, I mean, it was this was written in 67, the Cuban Missile Crisis was still fresh in the minds of a lot of people. Both the US and the Soviet Union were investing a lot of resources, and in the case of the state's actual combat troops into Vietnam. Mm. So I guess there was an incentive on their parts for to avoid outer space becoming another frontier? region of conflict. Yeah. Another frontier, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> it's a very spacey word, you know. <laughs> Final frontier, you might say. Mm. Exactly. But no, yeah, especially given the time period, it seems it seems a very sensible decision to have made. Yeah. To keep thing. their problems down on Earth, if at all possible. Mm -hmm. no. Plus, imagine the sort of conflicts that might have ignited if one group got there first and then and then declared, okay, it's ours now. Uh, we're It's our property. We own everything that's on it. Well, that leads very nicely into Article 2 and some of the stuff that Dr. Green talked about in his lecture. So, Article 2 states that outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means. So basically, you can't you can't take a ship out there, plant a flag and declare it's mine, but you also can't build a base there and say, well, I've lived here for the past three years, it's mine. No. I mean, of course, the Americans did plant a flag when they went down in Apollo 11, mm -hmm. but of course, in that context, they went as ambassadors of humanity 
Mm-hmm. It was um, a symbolic move rather than them literally saying, we claim this moon. <laughs> yeah. Bringing this back, back again to this, this report about setting up lunar fueling stations, at the end of this, they talk about because of this tremendous economic potential that the moon and outer space provides, if any one nation can get out there and establish claims before all the others, they will be at a, tre- a tremendous advantage compared to other nations that are still, quote-unquote, stuck down on the Earth. Mm. And that's, let's be honest, that's a lot of the Earth. I mean, how many spacefaring nations are there at this point? Uh, that is independent ones who can do it completely of their own accord and not borrowing someone else's rocketry. Yeah. Well, there's a few. So what this report suggests that ideally there would be a benevolent group of nations going out, out there all together working for mutual benefit as opposed to one just getting ahead of all the others saying this is mine and then building military moon bases to defend what they saw as their holdings. Mm-hmm. I mean as much as part of me thinks the idea of a, of uh, an actual armed moon base is just mildly spectacular. You know, it's just something out of a cartoon. Yeah. But at the same point, same time, that's a very concerning thing. It is. Especially because the Outer Space Treaty, as far as I can read it, does not explicitly prohibit the militarization of space. Mm, that is a concern. Ah, uh, actually, no, wait. Scratch that. Yes, it does. Let's go to Article 4. The establishment of military bases, installations and fortifications, the testing of any type of weapons, and the conduct of military manoeuvres on celestial bodies shall be forbidden. Mm, I mean, that is specifically military structures, though. So say that you've, you've got all your resources, but you just want to put someone up there to make sure that all your mining operations are going well. Yeah. And or to sure look out for space pirates. Look out for Ooh. space pirates. Mm, got, to, got to watch out for those space pirates. So, I guess this has been a bit of a rambling rant, I admit, but my conclusions at the end of this, I guess, are that current international law regarding this is dangerously weak, and the risks are tremendous. So, we really need to be having these sorts of conversations now before we start heading out there. Mm, Very much so. It's absolutely something where... If any one country decides that they are going to take it and damn the consequences, then that's not going to end well. For anybody. For anybody. To be honest, though, I would be as much concerned about it landing up in private hands and, you know, Mm. companies like SpaceX and Amazon and these people. Mm. Yes, some of them. I don't know. That that seems more likely to me to happen. You then get into the questions of how do you allocate mining rights? Can you buy or sell them? And if so, who does the buying or selling? I don't Mm. know. Just the notion that the the moon becomes privately owned to me, it does feel very. Mm. It it doesn't sit well. It's it's disconcerting on some level. The concept of space at all being something which can be privately owned is just. Yeah, it's something which I just can't quite get my head around, and I don't think it's something which I would ever be okay yeah. with. And I mean, the question then becomes for astronomers, how, did, how does that impact us? If we're looking on someone else's property, 
Mm. Do they have a say over what kind of research we do? Well, they take a restraining order out on us. Peeping <laughs> <laughs> Tom's. Might be an interesting one to enforce. Just someone's in the back garden with, the, he said, their wee six-inch mirror. Mm. <laughs> and suddenly the police burst in. <laughs> the space police. Mm-hmm. Mm. The space police, because you're you're watching someone's moon base and you're not allowed to do that, you incredibly naughty person. <laughs> I reckon the stars will still be safe for a while, though. Yeah, barring some technological miracle. (laughs) Which is why, taking a few steps back still, it's important that we don't burn through these resources too quickly that we do have access to. Mm. Because barring this extraordinary technological revolution where we are able to make it out to other stars and other planetary systems, our immediate neighbourhood is all we have access to. Mm-hmm. And while it might seem, you know, a bit futuristic, a bit sci-fi, to worry about using up resources on on the moon or on Mars or on the asteroids, when it's something which nobody has done yet, it's something we need to start talking about now. Mm. I'm sure it is something that will start happening. Maybe not next decade, but my personal feeling is certainly by the 2030s we will have some kind of permanent habitation up there. Yeah, I'd mm. agree with that. Yes, it seems very much the way it's going at the moment. And by all means, I think it would be excellent to have something uh, like a permanent habitation on the moon or some, especially things which might help us move on to other planets. Because I think that's one of the big draws of establishing a lunar base that makes the journey to Mars a bit Mm, easier. Exactly. Well, that's one of the big advantages of setting up a fueling station at the moon. If you can then, if you have a craft, say, going from Earth to Mars... You can then just top up to the moon, refuel there. That's then a lot less fuel that you have to then bring out of Earth's gravity well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot easier to do. And that would really make quite a big difference. Yeah, because fuel is heavy. Fuel is very heavy. And it also takes up an awful lot of room. Mm-hmm. And once you remove those factors from the equation, it makes sending rockets in general a lot more straightforward. Yeah. Because the other problem with fuel is... Because it's heavy, you need more fuel to lift the fuel. Exactly. The tyranny of the rocket equation is what these authors refer to. (laughs) Good way of putting it. Good way of putting it. Right, so, I have one last little order of business, because I'm conscious that we're running our... Blimey, 45 minutes we're up to. (laughs) Okay, I will try to keep this last bit brief. It was a couple of months back that one of our other presenters, Laura, put out a call for some astronomical poetry. And I have a little submission that I'd like to present to you, if I may. Oh, please do. I have a little bit of a history on this. I've done poetry on the show before. So, for a little bit of context, I will probably be coming up to the end of my studies sooner rather than later. I have plans for a thesis sketched out. Ooh. Yeah. And back when I was an undergrad, so this was the dim and distant past of 2016... (laughs) One of the other people that was graduating at the time put together an adaptation of the poem Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson, but had changed... I was going to say lyrics then, it's not lyrics. (laughs) (laughs) It changed some of the words and passages around, so it applied to physics and the perils of revision and programming and what have you. So inspired by that, I have my own... Jodcast adaptation of Ulysses, which I would like to present to you now, if I may. Of course. <laughs> well, I'm ready for this. <laughs> oh, yes. Hydrate. Hydrate. Mm. You're going to need that good poetry voice. 
Yeah. <clears throat> Especially because Ulysses is a dramatic monologue. Mm-hmm. I think you're going for maximum drama. <laughs> <laughs> Some drama. Don't overdo it. This isn't pantomime season. <laughs> <laughs> it little profits that an idle podcaster by this still computer among these barren offices matched with an aged mic I meet and doll audio segments unto overworked postgrads that code, drink, sleep, and develop Stockholm Syndrome. I cannot rest from science. I will drink astronomy to the lees. All times I have enjoyed greatly, have suffered greatly, both with those that loved me, and alone behind a partition, and when, through scudding drifts of GBCA, vexed the dim studio, I am become weary, for always roaming with a microphone, much have I seen and known, main and extra shows, presenting, the night sky, ask an astronomer, show edits not least, but feared most of all and drunk delight of publishing episodes with my peers, far on the ringing plains of Windy Macclesfield. I am a part of all that I have learned, yet all podcasting is an arch, where through gleams that uncovered topic whose levels spike, forever and ever as I record. How dull it is to pause, to make an end, to edit incessantly, not to shine in presenting, as though to edit were life. Edits, piled on edits, were all too little. And of podcasting to a thesis writer, little remains. But every hour is saved from that eternal silence. Something more, a bringer of new things. And cramped it were for some three sons to record in a cupboard. And this worn finalist, yearning in desire to broadcast knowledge like a rising star, beyond the utmost bounds of hard disk space. There lies the production, the machines and scripts ready, before lies the dreaded show edit. My jodcasters, souls that have toiled and wrought and thought with me, that ever with a good spirit took the segments and the questions, and opposed the delays and the website crashes. You and I are old, writing up hath yet its honour and its toil. The viva closes all, but something ere the end... Some work of noble note may yet be done, becoming of astronomers that strive in outreach. The lights begin to twinkle from the soundboard. The long day wanes, the slow moon climbs, the deep groans round with many voices. Come, my jodcasters! Tis not too late to seek an odd end. Sound up, and sitting well in order, leave ten seconds of silence. For my purpose holds to sail beyond to Sweden and the atmospheres of all the exoplanets until I die. It may be that the show edit will drag us down. It may be that we will touch the Happy Isles and see the great Dave and Megan, whom we knew. Though much is spoken, much remains. And though we are not now that strength which in old days made videos, that which we are, we are. One equal band of graduates, made weak by time and deadlines, but strong in will, to strive, to speak, to edit, and not to giggle. Thank you very much. That was brilliant, thanks. That was really great. For all of our listeners, there is in fact a single tear rolling down my cheek right now. (laughs) (laughs) 
You definitely win the points for for dramatic reading. Not too much drama, just nicely honed. Mm, thank you. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how we're going to lead this into Night Sky North now. Oh, oh I, I have an idea, actually. Okay. And now, from the poetry of the Jodcast to the poetry of the heavens, here is Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for June 2019. Well, we don't have many hours of darkness, and of course in the north of the United Kingdom it really never gets totally dark at all during June, but uh, there are still some nice things to see. And the sky I'm going to mention is what you might see around 11pm British summertime, a sort of in mid-UK. Well, as darkness falls, the rather nice constellation of Leo the Lion with its bright star Regulus is setting towards the west. The brightest star that we see in the south is Arcturus, at the southern end of the constellation of Bootes. Over to the left, we have the constellation of Hercules. And if you've got binoculars or a small telescope, if you find the keystone, which is sort of a a bit like a keystone in a bridge, really, if you go up the right-hand side about two-thirds of the way, you might see a little fuzzy blob. And that's M13. It's the largest globular cluster that we can actually see in the Northern Hemisphere, a wonderful spherical distribution of stars, very, very old, we believe. And then moving over and rising in the east is that lovely part of the sky with the constellation of Cygnus the Swan with its bright star Deneb. We have Lyra with its bright star Vega. And below them we have Aquila the Eagle with its bright star Altair. Those three stars make up what I think it was Patrick Moore called the Summer Triangle. If you work your way up from Altair about a third of the way towards Vega, you actually cross a fairly dark region of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift. But in there is a rather nice asterism called the Coat Hanger. It's actually upside down, but that's rather nice. Looking higher up in the sky, over towards the west somewhat, is the asterism, as it really is, of the Plough, which of course are the brightest stars in the constellation of Ursa Major. Again, with binoculars or a small telescope, if you look at the middle star of the three making up the handle, you should see it's a double star, Alcor and Mizar. That's rather nice to see too. Well, as I say, not a lot of night-time viewing, but something to see anyway. Well, what about the planets? We'll start with Jupiter. It shines at magnitude minus 2.6 throughout the month and it reaches opposition on June the 10th. So you'll see it, basically, throughout the night. Its angular size is its maximum of about 46 arc seconds across. However, it's lying in the southern part of Ophiuchus, up and to the left of Antares in Scorpius. And a highlight gives times when the great red spot faces the Earth. Just search for night sky, Jodrell Bank, and you'll find it. Sadly, It's heading towards the southernmost part of the ecliptic, so as it crosses the meridian, it will only have an elevation of about 14 degrees, as seen from the central part of the UK. Atmospheric dispersion, which acts a little bit like a prism, will thus take its toll, and an atmospheric dispersion corrector would greatly help to improve our views of the giant planet. Well, Saturn. It shines with a magnitude increasing from plus 0.3 to plus 0.1 during the month, rising at about 2200 UT at the beginning of June, so crosses the meridian in the early hours of the morning. 
By month's end, it rises about an hour earlier. It's moving towards opposition on July the ninth. Its disk is about eighteen arc seconds across, and the rings, which are still nicely tilted from the line of sight, spanning some forty arc seconds across. Sadly, now in Sagittarius and lying on the southern side of the Milky Way, it is at the lowest point of the ecliptic, and again will only reach an elevation of around twelve to fourteen degrees. Again, as with Jupiter, an atmospheric dispersion corrector would help improve our view. Now Mercury, following its passage through superior conjunction, that means it's behind the Sun on May the twenty-first, is now visible low in the northwest after sunset. As it moves towards greatest elongation east on June the twenty-third, it rises higher in the sky after sunset. However, though starting the month at magnitude minus one point one, this falls to magnitude plus zero point one by the seventeenth of the month, and plus zero point nine by month's end. Its angular size increases from five point five to nine point two arc seconds as the month progresses. To spot it, one would need a very low horizon, and binoculars could well be needed to reduce the sun's background glare. But of course, please do not use them until after the sun. Has said, "Well, Mars has been in our skies for a very long time. It remains at magnitude plus one point eight all month, and is still visible in the southwestern sky after sunset. Initially in Gemini, the heavenly twins, it moves into Cancer on the twenty-eighth of the month. Mars sets some two hours after the sun at the start of June, with an elevation as darkness falls of about eleven degrees, but less than one hour by month's end." Its angular size falls from 3.9 arc seconds to 3.7 arc seconds, so one will not be able to spot any details on its salmon pink surface. Finally, Venus, with a magnitude of minus 3.8, which is pretty bright, it rises just one hour before the sun this month, with an angular size reducing from 10.5 to 9.9 arc seconds. However, at the same time, the percentage illuminated disk, that's called its phase. Increases from ninety-four percent to ninety-eight percent, which is why the brightness remains constant at minus three point eight magnitudes. Its elevation is only four degrees at sunrise, so a very low horizon just north of east is required, and binoculars may well be needed to spot it through the sun's glare. But again, please do not use them until after the sun has set. Well, there are no specifically. High highlights this month, but here are a few. On June the fifth, after sunset, Mars is very close to a very thin crescent moon. You'll need a very low horizon towards the northwest after sunset, and should it be clear, you should be able to see Mars lying over to the left of a very thin crescent moon. And when the moon's a very thin crescent, there's always a chance of seeing Earthshine, which is the dark part of the moon's surface illuminated faintly. By light reflected from the Earth, on June the eighth, after sunset, a waxing crescent moon will be seen lying just above Regulus in Leo, and on June the fifteenth, around midnight, Jupiter will be seen over to the right of a moon which is on its way to full. On the nineteenth, after midnight, Saturn will be seen up to the left of the moon again, just before its full. On the twenty-seventh, after sunset. You can see Mars and Mercury, given a low horizon in the northwest, 
It's down to the left of Castor and Pollux in Germany. Now binoculars again may well be needed. I don't need to say it a third time, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. Again, as I mentioned, a highlight tells you the rather few times when there's a chance of seeing the great red spot facing the Earth, and that's those when it's basically after dark. I usually give something to look at on the moon, and this month I've mentioned Mons Piton and the crater Cassini, and the best time to see them together is the evening of June the tenth, and that's just after first quarter. Mons Piton is an isolated lunar mountain located in the eastern part of Mare Imbrium, southeast of the crater Plato and west of the crater Cassini. It has a diameter of 25 kilometers and a height of 2.3 kilometers. Incidentally, these heights were first found by measuring the length of the shadows given by the mountain, obviously noting too the angle of elevation of the sun at the time. Cassini is a 57-kilometer crater that's been flooded with lava. The crater floor has been impacted many times and holds within its borders two significant craters: Cassini A, the larger, and Cassini B. Again, in this rather lovely part of the lunar surface, north of Mons Piton, can be seen a rift through the Alpine mountains, Montes Alpes. It's around 166 kilometers long and has a thin rill along its center. I've never been able to see it, but I have been able to image it, as you could see in the lunar section of the night sky page. Just look for eight-day old moon. It's a very high-resolution image, the best I've ever taken, with a resolution of about 0.6 or 7 of an arc second, and it does show the rill running along the center of the rift and some little craters along it. So do have a look. Anyway, again, not many hours of darkness, but enjoy the summer days as well, of course. And I do hope you spot something. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haratina Mogoshano and Samuel Lesky with the night sky where you are. Buna zara din Romania. Hello, everyone. We are in Romania visiting the Northern Hemisphere and holding galactic conversations because that's what we do even on holiday. We actually have been to the Royal Observatory in Greenwich as well. At the beginning of the trip, and we are still raving about that stop. My favorite thing was watching Sam and our hosts there, Brendan Owens, talk while standing either side of the Prime Meridian. My favorite thing about the Royal Observatory at Greenwich was swinging the Great Equatorial Telescope and having a little turn with maneuvering it around the dome. It's an amazing telescope and huge, twenty. Eight-inch aperture and weighs 18 tons, quite a lot bigger than the Thomas Cook that I'm used to swinging around the dome back in Wellington. This month we're admiring the northern sky and reminiscing about the southern sky. We'll be back in New Zealand in the second part of the month. We have instructions for looking up. We talk a little bit about the month of June. We look at what the sun is up to, the Milky Way, Orion, and Scorpius. We talk about the brightest stars visible, and finally, some favorite binocular and telescope objects, circumpolar objects, and planets. A bit about June. June is the sixth month of the year in the Julian and Gregorian calendars, and the first month of summer in the northern hemisphere, and the first month of winter in the southern hemisphere. As I'm sure our colleagues back in New Zealand are finding out, 
June contains the summer solstice in the Northern Hemisphere, the day with the most daylight hours. And the winter solstice in the Southern Hemisphere is the day with the fewest daylight hours. Of course not at the poles, though. June in the Northern Hemisphere is the seasonal equivalent to December in the Southern Hemisphere, and vice versa. It is named after the Roman goddess Juno, the goddess of marriage and the wife of the supreme deity Jupiter. Her name is also Hera. It can also, the name can come from the Latin word juniores, means younger ones, as opposed to maiores, elders, for which the preceding month May, Maius, may be named too. June could also be named after Lucius Junius Brutus, founder of the Roman Republic and ancestor of the Roman gens Junia. The juniper tree's name is derived from the Latin word juniperus. In Latin, juniperus is a combination of the word junior, which means young, and parere, to produce, hence youth-producing or evergreen. Ginepro, or Italian for juniper, Ginevra, Italian variant form of juniper, and Gini are other names that also refer to the juniper tree. However, it is unclear whether Jennifer comes from juniper. Traditionally, June flowers are rose and honeysuckle, which is not weird, actually, as in Europe, these are right now in bloom, and we can see for ourselves right now they're gorgeous. And a piece of weird information out there for the Romans, the beginning of June, the 15th of May to the 15th of June, actually, was a bad time to get married. Anyway, stars have nothing to do with what happens here on Earth unless our sun decides to make mega solar flares, which are predicted to appear and reappear in the next uh, few years as the sun starts gearing up again towards a solar maximum. Or it can also get bad when stars in the local neighbourhood go bad or go supernova and Earth happens to be in the way and that radiation can uh, affect what happens on Earth. And in fact, there's been a couple of interesting papers released in the last couple of weeks about supernova that may have gone off in our local neighbourhood a couple of million years ago, which may have actually caused more forest fires on Earth, which opened up the forest to uh, grasslands, which uh, may have helped our ancestors decide to stand up on two feet. That's very awesome. But other than that, just sit back, relax, and enjoy the view of the stars as they have nothing to do with what happens to us right now. Unless they go bad. (laughs) Alright, talking about stars going bad, meteor showers, there are a few meteor showers written out there, like um, the Ariatids, they should take place May 22nd to July 2nd each year and peak on June the 7th, Beta Taurids on June 7th to July 18th. The issues with these is that the sun is very close to the two constellations, Arias and Taurus, and for the observers back in the southern hemispheres, you will have to wake up very early in the morning to watch them, providing you have a good horizon. So stand on a mountain. Stand on a mountain. The June booties take place roughly between 26th of June and 2nd of July each year. Bootes is grazing the northern horizon in Wellington again, so maybe not as good as we would have thought. We get a lot of questions about meteor showers at the observatory when people ring us and they say, hey, we saw these meteor showers um, in the newspaper or in media. But um, the question is, do does media look at them? Well, and when you say grazing the northern horizon, that pretty much means you can't see them. <laughs> it's the polite way of saying that you can't see them. <laughs> right. So this is clear about the meteor showers. Let's talk about the sun. What's the sun up to? 
Well, the sun rises from 7.30 to 7.50 um, throughout the month and sets at about 5pm. Beautiful and long nights are here, but so is the cold weather. In the meantime, we are basking 32 degrees in the sun in the Northern Hemisphere and getting a great tan. In June, the sun first transits the zodiacal constellations of Taurus, switching to Gemini on the 23rd of June. So again, if you thought you were born in a certain star sign... You're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Right, what's happening to the Milky Way? We are now looking towards the center of our galaxy, which rises in the southeast just after sunset and reaches meridian around midnight in the middle of the month. Bright stars of the Milky Way, well, starting from the west after sunset, Betelgeuse is slowly sinking into the sun. Well, it's not actually sinking into the sun because it's significantly bigger than the sun, but that's how it looks. And it will be gone from the evening sky towards the middle of the month. In a zigzag to the north is uh, Procyon, the little dog, Alpha Star, and zigzagging again is Sirius, the big dog, and Adhara. Suhail al Muliv is shining in valour, and Avior, Aspidiske, and Mia Cetus are bright stars in Carina. The beautiful stars of the Southern Cross follow the two pointers, Alpha and Beta Centauri. Later on in the night, after the centre of the Milky Way rises, is Antares and Shula and Scorpius, Nunki and Sagittarius, and last but not least, after midnight, Altair and Vega are grazing the northern horizon with their beauty. Which so means, again, you might not be able to see them from Wellington. <laughs> well, they're really bright, so, you know, maybe. Maybe if you stand on a mountain and you're looking out to sea or something. Go and find a mountain, people. Yep. <laughs> Orion and Scorpius. Right, Orion and Scorpius are very significant because they're very bright, they're very clear, you can see them. So then people invented this legend that there were mortal enemies. And because of that, Zeus placed them 180 degrees from each other. So they're really, really good sky markers. So Orion is now very close to Taurus, where the sun is kind of located on the zodiacal band, and it will sink further towards the horizon as the month progresses. Enjoy it while it lasts. For the rest of the month, it will disappear from our sight in mid-June. Bright stars on the ecliptic, Regulus in Leo, which is extremely close to the ecliptic, and Spica, or Spica, the blue giant in Virgo, are great shiny stars. Also, one of my favorites, Zubinel Genubi, another star grazing the ecliptic, and Zubinel Shamali just beneath it. Zubinel Genubi means the northern claw, and Zubinel Shamali means the southern claw, alluding to these two stars that have been the claws of Scorpius before they were chopped off and turned into the current constellation of Libra. They're followed by Antares, which is the very last bright star visible on the ecliptic before sunrise. And circumpolar objects to New Zealand, the beautiful Southern Cross, of course, and the pointers are high in the sky at sunset. Gakrooks and Akrooks, Waikrooks, are crossing the meridian around about 7pm in the middle of the month. Omega Centauri is in a great position to observe, as well as Muska, Vela, Carina, and their Diamond Cross, the False Cross, and the Large Magellanic Cloud, and of course the huge giant spider, the Tarantula Nebula, which is always fantastic and nice and high. There's some binocular objects in June, obviously, and we love binoculars because we think you can see much better with them. Get a tripod, get a good pair of binoculars. We have 7x50s and a pair of 10x50, 
And the first number, for those who are wondering what that is, is the measure of power. It means how much those binoculars magnify. In this case, 7 and the 10. The second number is the diameter of the objective, the big lens at the front in millimeters. In this case, the 50. They're really good for beginning to look at the night sky. Don't get a telescope first, get a pair of binoculars first. We have two eyes, so binocular views are more spectacular in many regards than a telescope. Because our brains interpret what we see, binoculars give depth of view as they engage both eyes in the process. I actually bought a telescope before I bought binoculars, but you know, and I would never go back. <laughs> <laughs> but binoculars are fantastic, and they're a great way to start learning the night sky. But you do carry your binoculars everywhere you go. Yes, true. <laughs> they're a bit easier to carry than a 16-inch um, Dobsonian reflector. <laughs> so what can we see with binoculars? Close to the area south of the triangle that marks Leo's hips, M65, M66 and NGC3628 are amazing and they will be visible depending on the size of your binoculars. They're also known as the Leo triplet. Also in Leo, M105 is an elliptical galaxy. Last but not least, M96, another galaxy in Leo, lies at about 35 million light years away. In Virgo, there's some amazing deep sky objects too. And it's probably worth noting, actually, when you're looking at galaxies with binoculars, you're not going to get a Hubble-type view. And, and very, galaxies are very sensitive to light pollution, so if you, you really need to be in a really dark sky location to be able to see the galaxies. But anyway, in Virgo, you can get a map and look for all these objects. They're fantastic. Or if everything else fails, simply take your binoculars out and just swipe the Milky Way from one edge to the other. And it's be amazing what you'll find. You'll see clusters and all sorts of things that look truly amazing. You might not figure out exactly which objects you're looking at, but you would definitely find some amazing sights, especially in the region close to Carina. There you'll find a whole lot of numbers prepare. IC2602, NGC3114, NGC353, NGC2516. And if you remember all those, they're all open clusters. Good luck. And, and groups. And there's also ngc um, 4755, which is another open cluster. NGC 2451 in Pupus and IC 2391 in Well, if you don't remember these numbers, it doesn't matter because we wrote them down on our website. So just check up. Yeah, just Way Kiwi. Yeah. Lower down, Omega Centauri is a globular cluster in Centaurus and Scorpius. There are the butterfly cluster M7. I mean, these are classics, right? Open cluster M7. And NGC 6231 open cluster as well. Telescope objects in June. A fantastic night sky in central Wellington where the large Magellanic cloud is only visible with averted vision. Still not bad for a capital city. We looked at the Southern Beehive NGC 2516, the gem cluster, again classics, NGC 3293, Southern Pleiades IC 2602, Wishing Well, NGC 3532, Dual Box, NGC 4755, Omicron Velorum, IC 2391, Omega Centauri, NGC 5139, Alpha Centauri and Acrux Tarantula, NGC 2070. Sounds like a big long list. We actually talk about them in Astronomy on Tap every beginning of the month and we show them big there out there in the planetarium so you do have hubble like pictures if you do want to check these things out and if you do ever make it to wellington and it's a nice clear night and i'm on the telescope then we can have a look at those in the thomas cook okay the planets from the start of the month jupiter's position just keeps getting better and better 
At the start of the month, it rises about 5.30 in the very early evening. And by the end of the month, it's already a third of the way up the sky by that time. The best thing is you won't have to stay up too late to get the best views of Jupiter at the end of the month because the planet will be nearly straight up from about 10.30pm. With the minimum amount of atmosphere to look through, you should see some fantastic detail on the planet. And those of of you who are into imaging of the gas giant might be able to capture some of the activity that is going on with the Great Red Spot at the moment, which is on its way to actually becoming the (laughs) mediocre red spot by the looks of things. It seems to be disintegrating. That's very sad. I wonder what Galileo would say about that. Wow, yeah, well, he will need a bigger telescope. There is good news too. The good news, the other good news is for the month is that Saturn will be about two hours behind Jupiter and so will be improving throughout the month as well. But what's amazing about Saturn at this time of the year and this year is that the rings are in the greatest position to observe because, you know, the ring opening changes throughout the years around a six years cycle. So this year we're onto it. People get your telescopes out there, come to Space Place at Cut Observatory, look at Saturn through the telescope. It's absolutely magnificent. And you can see the rings at their biggest and most beautifulness. Especially because Saturn's really high in the sky, so you'll get a nice nice view of it. These rings are side on and what that means they're at this great angle to see there is a thickness that you can see. There are some of the delicate banding, including the dark band known as the Cassini division. And if you haven't observed Saturn for a while, then as we were saying, just get out there, have a good look before the rings start to close up again. Venus is nice and bright in the, well, of course it is because it's always nice and bright in the, in the morning or the evening sky, but at the moment in the morning sky for the first part of the month. And it's steadily getting closer and closer to the sun. So you won't be able to see it. After a while, Mercury slowly improves its position over the month with getting up close and personal with Mars in mm. the early evening of the 19th of June. So if you get a good horizon, it's still quite close to the sun, so it might be quite hard to see. But you might be able to see those two planets visually quite close to each other. And they'll be about 22 arc minutes apart at around 6pm. You know, quite low on the horizon. And you'll, so you'll need a nice clear view of the northwestern horizon if you have any chance of seeing them. Though they should should be visible at around 5.30 because it's sort of starting to get quite dark as well. And they'll be 10 degrees above the horizon. So it's actually not too bad. So it's a good chance you'll see them. If, and you'll easily see them in a pair of binoculars. The Moon and Pluto have a visually close encounter at 10 p.m. also on the 19th of June. Seriously, good luck seeing it through, mm-hmm. given the huge difference in brightness of the two celestial objects. But maybe you can get a very, 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 very good telescope. Yeah, <laughs> and somehow blot out the moon so you can actually see Pluto. <laughs> well, other than that, clear skies from wherever you are in this world. I'm Haritina Mogoshanu. And I'm Sam Leski. From Space Place at Carter Observatory, we wish you clear skies. Thanks for that, Heretina and Sam. And now on to the feedback. So we've had a couple of bits of Facebook feedback about the email that I conducted with Sixie. So from Frances Day, she says, Loved both parts of the fascinating interview with Dr. Sixie Resonan. The black holes as dark matter theory was extremely interesting. Jordan. I have to admit, I like that as well. It's the sort of thing that sounds crazy but that might just be crazy enough to work. (laughs) That's the kind of thing that we like, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. 
especially because I am not a cosmologist, not by any stretch of the imagination. Nor I. <laughs> means that you can believe more crazy stuff. Mm. Mm-hmm. Just look at some of those alarming equations and go, yeah, we could fit sure. a black hole in there. Fair enough. Yeah. Mm. Why not? And from Jonathan Shin, also via Facebook. Really like the May 2019 show and the interview with 60 Resonen talking about alternatives to the standard model. Sounds as if our understanding of gravity could be about to change. Also enjoying George's random astronomical objects. As I progress through my part-time astronomy degree, every Jodcast episode starts to make more sense and become more connected. <laughs> That's the joys of listening to an astronomy podcast while you're studying. Mm. Eventually you'll start to understand all of our ramblings. <laughs> Which will be remarkable, because even we don't understand that mm. sometimes. <laughs> well. Yeah, that's well, best of luck to you in your studies, Jonathan. So, we've already had some poetry from you, Jake. Yeah. And we actually had a poetry submission as well. We uh, do, from, from Facebook one of our well. listeners. Yeah, from Francis Cairns, who says, Hello, Jodcasters. I heard on the April edition that you were hoping for some poems about astronomy. Well, I haven't written beautiful verses, I'm afraid but I did manage a limerick. Limericks are always good. Mm -hmm. So, here we go. Some postgrads set up on their Todd. A wonderful podcast from Jod. They talked all things astronomical to funding economical, and I've listened for 11 years on my pod. Hmm. (laughs) Keep jodding on. We'll do our best. Economical is is a polite word for it. <laughs> In the money tin behind me, we've got a one-pound coin and a five-pound note, neither of which are now legal tender. <laughs> Whoops. And those were given to me by Ben and Charlie. <laughs> so, I guess this is your problem now. Mm. Oh, no. Keep his memorabilia. Oh, I mean, I suppose maybe... Maybe eventually we'll join the modern era and look into something like Patreon or something, but yeah, yeah, this is possibly. All, but the Jodcast is always going to be free. Start selling blood. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like there's been talk of t-shirts. T-shirts. Well, good. if our listeners would like t-shirts, or one thing I was intrigued by the prospect of was mugs. Mm, but mugs. if you, if that's something that any of our listeners would be interested in, then by all means, let us know. Yeah, and we will see what can be done. So that's it from feedback. And if you want to get in touch with us here at the show, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. So I guess that really is it for this after-hour session. Thanks to Stefan Corbell for the interview. The editors were Adam Avison, Naomi Asabri Frimpong, Deepika Venkati, Lizzie Lee, Hongming Tang, and Tom Scrag. Until next time, Jordan! Jordan!